Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to today's edition of This Week in Business History for the week of September 20th, 2021. So today I am feeling inspired by a couple of things. First, I enjoyed Kelly Barner's show last week where she dialed in on an unsung hero, Lewis Howard Latimer, who fixed Thomas Edison's light bulb. I bet you've never heard the name Lewis Howard Latimer, have you? If you haven't listened to that episode yet, be sure you do. I do admire Kelly Barner's great ability to tell a story. I'm also inspired by someone else that I truly admire, Dr. Sally Eves. Sally is a sought-after keynote technologist and Hall of Fame do-gooder. I was able to catch up with Sally last week where she mentioned one of her mantras is to, quote, make the invisible visible, end quote. I just love that. So between Kelly and Sally's perspective, I'm feeling motivated to share a few more invisible unsung heroes. These are folks that we should all know more about, especially their contributions to business history. So with that said, on today's episode of This Week in Business History, I'm going to be telling you the stories of Olive Ann Beach, Fred Harvey, and Bayard Rustin. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining me here today. And if I could ask for a simple favor, I sure would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show and, of course, leave us a review. Let us know what you think, and you can do that wherever you get your podcast from. Again, we appreciate your support, so let's dive in to this week in business history powered by the team over at Supply Chain Now. All right, let's begin today's show by sharing the journey of Olive Ann Meller Beach. Born September 25, 1903 in Waverly, Kansas, Olive Ann was a fast learner with a sharp mind. By the age of seven years old, yes, seven years old, she had her own checking account. That must have been very atypical for young women in the early 20th century. And by the age of 11, Olive Ann was in charge of paying bills for the family. In 1917, the Meller family would move to Wichita, Kansas. There, Olive Ann chose to skip high school and just go ahead and enroll in the American Secretarial and Business College. In 1924, Olive Ann would chart a new course in her life at the ripe old age of 20 years old. Then she began her career in the aviation industry by joining the Travel Air Manufacturing Company as an office secretary and bookkeeper. Now, the Travel Air Manufacturing Company, located there in Wichita, Kansas, well, that was a really interesting organization. It was essentially a startup 
when Olivan joined. However, the trio of partners behind this startup would become legends in the aviation industry. You had Clyde Cessna, the pride of Hawthorne, Iowa, Lloyd Stearman from Wellsford, Kansas, and one Walter Beach, who was originally from Pulaski, Tennessee. It was Walter Beach who would essentially lead the company, and he was determined to build the finest airplanes in the world. While Olive Ann was indeed quick with numbers, she was new to airplanes, like just about everyone else at that point in time. But that didn't slow her down at all, as Olive Ann would promptly begin learning every single part that was used to build the company's main product at the time, which was a travel air biplane. She also dove into the nuances and operations of the fairly new aircraft industry. In fact, Olive Ann was such a quick study and impressive worker that she was promoted to not only serve as office manager for travel air manufacturing, but also to personal secretary for the company's fearless leader, Walter Beach. And a romance would develop between Olive Ann and Walter. So M&A activity was intense at this time. First travel air manufacturing company would merge with Curtis Wright Corporation and Olive Ann Meller would merge with Walter Beach via marriage in 1930. Two years later, the young couple would leave Travel Air and start their own thing. Beach Aircraft Company was born, founded by both Olive Ann and Walter and a few other investors there, right there in Wichita, Kansas. Walter would serve as president and Olive Ann as secretary treasurer. Olive Ann would take a very active role with what was now her second startup. As the young company was trying to find a way to increase sales, Olive Ann suggested that they hire a female pilot to fly one of their Beechcraft airplanes in a well-known air race at the time, which was known as the Bendix Trophy Race. Well, the company would do just that, and Louise Thaden would be hired to race, and she'd win that race, undoubtedly furthering both Beach Aircraft Company sales and the pursuits of female pilots in that era. In fact, Beach Aircraft Company would indeed profitably grow. And in 1936, Walter and Olive Ann would purchase their old plant from their travel air manufacturing company days right there in Wichita, Kansas. The company would also issue common stock in 1936, and that would have Olive Ann being put on the board of directors for the company. The 1940s would change everything for everyone. On a personal level, Walter Beach would be diagnosed with encephalitis. Undaunted, Olive Ann Beach would take the reins for the company and make things happen. And Beach Aircraft Company would need tons of leadership because demand for its aircraft were skyrocketing due to World War II. The Twin Beach and the Stagger Wing, which were the company's core products at the time, well, they were being ordered everywhere. Olive Ann quickly determined that more production capacity would be needed so she went to work to secure $83 million in loans for plant expansion. Soon, Beach Aircraft Company was not only delivering the Twin Beach and the Staggerwing, but newly developed aircraft like the Navigator and the Kansan. By the end of World War II, over 7,400 aircraft were produced by the company. But right after the war, a critical product development breakthrough would occur. 
Beach Aircraft Company would introduce a V-tailed single-engine aircraft that would be named the Bonanza. They didn't know it at the time, but the Bonanza would become an aviation industry legend. Over 17,000 would be produced and they're still being made. In fact, the Bonanza has been in continuous production longer than any other aircraft in history. But in 1950, after a decade of success and innovation that was instrumental to Beach Aircraft Company's growth, Walter Beach, he died unexpectedly from a heart attack. Olive Ann Beach would be named president and chair of the board. In doing so, she'd become the first woman to head a major aircraft company. Olive Ann would lead the company with a major focus on innovation and diversification. She would create a culture of empowerment, accomplishment, and achievement. Now that was really important because the company would be tested again with the Korean War, but also the introduction of the space race, which of course opened new markets for all aviation companies. The Beach Aircraft Company organization celebrated together when NASA's Gemini 4 spacecraft orbited Earth 62 times in 1965 using a beach-built spacecraft cabin pressuring system, a deal that Olive Ann Beach would personally negotiate with NASA. The company would eventually provide equipment for the Apollo and space shuttle programs as well. Olive Ann Beach would challenge the company to develop new aircraft that would resonate with new and experienced aviation enthusiasts alike. During her 20 years at the helm of the company, sales would triple. Raytheon Technologies Corporation would acquire Beach Aircraft Company in 1980 and set it up as a new division called Beechcraft. Two years later, Raytheon would remove Olive Ann Beach and a fellow colleague from the Beechcraft Board of Directors due to lack of sales. Not only was Olive Ann not surprised by the move, but she famously stated, Quote, we sold the farm. If they don't like us living on it, that is their prerogative. End quote. But she had certainly made her legendary mark on her company and the global aviation industry by then. Olive Ann Beach would be the first woman to receive the National Aeronautic Association's Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy for her contributions to industry. She'd be enshrined into the National Aviation Hall of Fame the American National Business Hall of Fame, and even become the very first inductee in the Kansas Business Hall of Fame in 1986. Olive Ann Beach, who would earn the nickname First Lady of Aviation, would pass away in her sleep at home in Eastboro, Kansas on July 6, 1993. Although she rarely liked to give interviews, Olive Ann Beach would be quoted once as saying, Quote, if you enjoy your work, all you have to do is be capable and take the pitfalls along with the good. I was very fortunate throughout my life that I didn't have to do anything that I didn't like. I enjoyed what I did, end quote. Let's now move from the aviation industry to food, beverages, and the restaurant business. Do you know who is credited with coming up with the first restaurant chain in the United States? Well, if you're like me, you probably had no idea because that would be one Frederick Henry Harvey, who was born in 1835 in Liverpool, England. He would later move to the U.S. with his family in 1853 at the age of 17. 
Fred Harvey would find a job with what was available at the time. He'd scrub pots and bust tables at a restaurant in New York City. Fred would learn the restaurant business from his employers, Henry Smith and T.R. McNeil, and he'd work his way up to eventually waiting tables and serving as a line cook. This restaurant industry experience would prove critical in Fred Harvey's young life. He'd move to New Orleans and then to St. Louis and other cities. He'd try different jobs, including working in a jewelry store, which was a very brief adventure. The food industry would call Fred Harvey's name once again, and he'd open up a cafe. But this first culinary adventure would be derailed by the American Civil War, after which his business partner fled with all their money. So Fred Harvey, he had to make some tough choices. So then the railroad industry would intervene, and Fred would join what would eventually be Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. The railroad and his job would take him everywhere, and it taught him an important lesson. The food available to railroad travelers, well, it was simply horrible. So with this common and regular experience and big problem, he wanted to come up with a solution. Fred Harvey would dabble in a few eating operations and restaurant ideas, but they didn't quite stick. In 1876, Fred Harvey, though, would create a new side hustle. By day, he was a freight agent for the railroad, and by night, and probably all other times, he would open and operate three railroad eating houses in Wallace, Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, and Hugo, Colorado. They all did really well and were popular with the travelers. They were solutions that tackled that problem he had experienced head on. Bad food everywhere you go when it comes to railroads. But the venture would only last a year. With the taste of success fresh in mind, Fred would approach his railroad employer, Burlington, about partnering to put an eating house at all railroad stops across their whole railroad line. They declined. So Fred Harvey would shop his idea with the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. And they liked what they heard. In fact, the railroad agreed to provide him with space for his eating houses at no charge. Fred wasted no time and set up the first of his Harvey houses in 1878 along the AT and SF tracks in Florence, Kansas. Its success quickly led to a second operation in Lakin, Kansas in 1879. All told, there would ultimately be 84 Harvey houses, the first true restaurant chain in North America. All so successful and popular that Fred Harvey would gain the nickname as the Civilizer of the West. But of course, to run dozens of restaurants, you needed quite a labor force. Enter Harvey Girls, which the servers at the Harvey houses became known as. Dressed in crisp, clean white aprons, this army of servers really added to the experience of the patrons and the growth of its unique brand. Filmmaker Katrina Parks told CBS News that the Fred Harvey Company was well ahead of its time because it gave women an opportunity to travel and to escape their small hometowns that oftentimes offered little opportunity. Parks produced a documentary called The Harvey Girls, Opportunity Bound, which tells the tale of what she calls, quote, one of America's first female labor forces. Now to be fair, 
Harvey would limit the opportunity to only white women, and he would also dictate that they couldn't marry until they had worked with the company for a full year. Gosh, how strange is that labor law? Back to Fred Harvey. Beyond employing girls as servers, Harvey would also hire a woman to be his company's main architect. That architect would be Mary Coulter, who some would say was both brilliant and intimidating. Coulter would develop the Santa Fe style as she designed Fred Harvey's grand hotels, which would soon follow the restaurants. Fred Harvey would pass away due to intestinal cancer in 1901. Now at that time, there were 47 Harvey houses, 15 hotels, and almost three dozen dining cars on the Santa Fe Railway. Quite the enterprise. It's been said that some of Fred Harvey's last words were tongue-in-cheek advice to his sons. He was said to say, quote, cut the ham thinner, boys, which was a reference to maintaining margin on the staple sandwiches that his restaurant served. It's also been said that the famous blue plate special, which can be found in countless diners and cafes across the world today, well, the Harvey House originated that idea first. Regardless, after Fred Harvey's passing, the Fred Harvey Company kept expanding led by his sons Ford and Byron. And as railroad ridership started to decrease, the company would have to diversify. The company would build restaurants and other attractions at the Grand Canyon, the Chicago Union Station, the Albuquerque International Airport, the Los Angeles Union Passenger Terminal, and countless other sites from coast to coast. In 1968, the Hawaiian-based company Amfac, which is now known as Zantera, would purchase the Fred Harvey Company. Now Stephen Freed, who wrote a book about Fred Harvey named Appetite for America, he would tell CBS News that, quote, I think he understood America better than a lot of Americans did at the time. Fred Harvey said, well, if I had better food, maybe my railroad will win. And in fact, that's what happened, end quote. A Fred Harvey Museum is located at his former residence in Leavenworth, Kansas. Finally today, I want to share the story of one Bayard Rustin, who has been called one of the most influential and effective organizers of the Civil Rights Movement. Rustin was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and raised by his maternal grandparents, who were active in the Civil Rights Movement in the early 20th century. In fact, NAACP leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois, and James Weldon Johnson were said to be frequent guests in Rustin's grandparents' home, and of course, they would greatly influence his worldview. After attending college at Wilberforce University and Cheney State Teachers College, Bayard Rustin would move to Harlem in 1937, where he'd get involved in a wide variety of things, from civil rights to communism to music. In the 1940s, Rustin would travel to California to help protect the property of some 120,000 Japanese Americans that had been placed in internment camps during World War II. In 1942, some 13 years before Rosa Parks famously refused to give up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama, Bayard Rustin would be a pioneer in the movement to desegregate bus travel. He boarded a bus in Louisville and sat in the second row. As it headed toward its destination of Nashville, Tennessee, Rustin would be asked by a variety of drivers to move to the back. 
he refused. Some 13 miles shy of Nashville, the bus was stopped and Rustin would be beaten, arrested, and taken to jail, eventually released with no charges. In 1948, Bayard Rustin would travel to India for seven weeks in an effort to closely study Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence. Rustin would share these learnings with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King would invite him to serve as a formal advisor, even though he knew Rustin would receive criticism from other civil rights leaders due to his homosexuality. At the time, that didn't matter to Dr. King, who would later write that, quote, we are thoroughly committed to the method of nonviolence in our struggle, and we are convinced that Bayard's expertness and commitment in this area will be of inestimable value, end quote. In 1956, Bayard Rustin would become a key advisor and supporter to Dr. King during the Montgomery bus boycott. During one of Rustin's visits to Montgomery, and as he was participating in one of Dr. King's meetings, he would later write, quote, As I watched people walk away, I had a feeling that no force on earth can stop this movement. It has all the elements to touch the hearts of men, end quote. In 1962, A. Philip Randolph would recruit Rustin to help him with an initiative that would center on a large march on Washington, D.C. The march was meant to mark the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Rustin would be deeply involved in the wide variety of operations and logistics that would make this historic event incredibly successful. In a critical communication piece called Organizing Manual Number 2, Rustin and his team would assemble core information and disseminate that, which included, quote, who is sponsoring the march, why we march, our demands, how our demands will be presented in Congress, who will march, what are our immediate tasks, how do I get to Washington, the schedule in Washington, how do we leave Washington, signs and banners, food, health and sanitation facilities, children and overnight accommodation, captains, marshals, end quote. What a remarkable list. How detailed was that? But all told, that level of detail and planning expertise was incredibly important. And it would lead to the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Well, that would be, as we all know, wildly successful and really incredibly important to the overall civil rights movement. In fact, it was so successful that one of Bayard Rustin's nicknames would eventually be Mr. March on Washington. Over 200,000 people would assemble in our nation's capital, demanding change. Of course, the event would facilitate one of history's most iconic speeches of all time. That would be the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Rustin would be among the delegation of civil rights leaders that would meet with President Kennedy at the White House after the march. Although, Rustin would sadly be forced in the shadows due to his homosexuality. Rustin's longtime partner, Walter Nagel, would say years later that Rustin, quote, as a Quaker, he believed in being of service and didn't need to be in the spotlight, end quote. A lifetime of service is what Bayard Rustin would be committed to. 
Rustin would pass away on August 24, 1987, just four days shy of the 24th anniversary of the March on Washington. Rustin once wrote that, quote, the principal factors which influence my life are one, nonviolent tactics, two, constitutional means, three, democratic procedures, four, respect for human personality, five, a belief that all people are one, end quote. 26 years after Rustin's passing, President Barack Obama would award him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013, which would state, quote, Bayard Rustin was an unyielding activist for civil rights, dignity, and equality for all. An advisor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he promoted nonviolent resistance, participated in one of the first freedom rides, organized the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and fought tirelessly for marginalized communities at home and abroad. As an openly gay African-American, Mr. Rustin stood at the intersection of several of the fights for equal rights." End quote. Bayard Rustin's remarkable accomplishments certainly prove that whether you are in the spotlight or not, your efforts and accomplishments can truly make history. Well, folks, that just about does it for this week's episode of This Week in Business History. I hope you've enjoyed the stories of Olivan, Fred, and Bayard as much as I have. With that said, we wish you a wonderful week ahead. And hey, this is Scott Luton urging you to do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And we'll see you here, right back here next time on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.